This is the Wizard and Oz podcast, a future-focused show looking at current events and what we can do about them. I'm joined by <laughs> Tristan Barker, an infamous internet troll turned investment banker, reformed fugitive, and indigenous environmentalist. Alongside him, Oz, a Republican district leader in Harlem, focused on clean tech, blockchain legislation, an American Muslim. He's also focused on bridging the gap between faiths. My name is Lockie. I'm your moderator and a halal snack pack enthusiast. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Rocket Tech Support. Protect your computer, protect your community, protect your country. Gentlemen, thank you for joining in the second episode of the Wizard and Oz podcast. I know that there's a, a couple of different topics that we want to cover this week uh, compared to last mm-hmm. episode. Um, so let's jump right in. By the way, who's our guest? This is Baby. Um, I... Baby is, in fact, a rabbit. Um has very strong opinions on plant life and um, uh, waste management. So I know both of you have experienced your individual health issues that have required uh, pain management strategies. Uh, would love to get your story, Tristan, um, uh, on that issue. So I've got a very, very lovely condition called complex regional pain syndrome which is the worst chronic pain condition known to man. For reference, um, on the McGill pain scale, uh, there is no condition other than CRPS, which rates worse than your peak natural pains, which is uh, unassisted birth, um, second degree burns to more than 10% of the skin, or amputation of like limb, finger, toe. Um, There's only one condition that manages to register a worse pain signal than that chronically and 24 seven, which is as bad as it sounds in some regards. It's not as bad as it sounds in others because the brain can recognize that this is not a sane um, or prolonged signal. So my brain then has rewired over the course of having this since about age 10. Um, so what it does is it, it, it realizes, hey, we can't turn this signal down. So pretty much the space on my shoulder, about three hands worth, thinks that it's on fire, being stabbed, cut, crushed, frozen, etc. cetera, um, all the time. And so the brain goes, okay, well, we can't turn that signal down. Can we turn every other signal up? And so this is, it leads to really quite a lot of abnormalities. It's, it's similar to like a person who's blind. It's not that they uh, necessarily lack a sense. They're not just like a normal human with this thing changed in and out in a normal way. You, you actually completely change the way you process a lot of things in general. So for example, uh, I've correctly managed to guess exactly how collapsed my lung is once when it's punctured because I've had it happen before and uh, my brain won't shut off. It won't just give me like a screaming pain in a particular area. I instead get the same level of detail a normal person would if they're running their fingers over braille or something like that. I can feel that on things as painful as a puncture wound on the inside, Mm. which is... Um, incredibly useful in one regard 
um, in that I can deal with a lot and still maintain a great degree of bodily awareness. Problem is uh, neurochemically, a lot of things essentially have been shifted from automatic to manual. So uh, I can't ramp myself down without a great concerted effort. Um, I have to make conscious uh, decisions to control um, arousal or uh, relaxation as a result. Um, so it's a it's an interesting thing to deal with because you don't have you don't have a lot of the normal rules apply in terms of pain management, right? So uh, if you give me enough opioids to deal with that pain, it's going to have to be enough opioids that it basically shuts me down entirely. Whereas certain things have a cannabinoid response. So, uh, that includes endorphins like exercise is number one in my management. Um, and, uh, you know, an amount of cannabis that I'd say lowers my functionality by 10%, 15%. Is still more effective than an opioid treatment that's going to leave me half uh, present. Um, so it's it's a particularly difficult one to have to manage in a country that doesn't have legalized marijuana um, and has a lot of hurdles to get access to it uh, medically that are generally quite expensive as well. Um, and uh, it's it's come with with a journey of getting shoved onto hooked on and having to come off opioids, um, right. which is, uh, I'd say the, the biggest challenge of all. So with that, um, I'd, I'd like to uh, just delve deeper into that. You said that uh, it was fit sort of fairly early onset um, from around the age of 10 that you started experiencing those symptoms. So um, <clears throat> can you can you explain a, a little bit more around sort of what, what causes that? Was there, was there something that that caused that to happen or is it, is it a genetic fault or? The, the official diagnosis is a, is a pretty jolly one. It's um, complex regional pain syndrome caused by extreme childhood abuse. Um, I don't know um, what incident in particular may have caused it um, or if it was self-inflicted because I was a pretty ridiculous child as well. Um, but the thing that's that, that was quite funny in the woodworks of figuring it out is it started off looking like a neuropathic issue. I was being checked for nerve cancer. Um, I was mm -hmm. losing feeling and function all the way down my arm. And I never got diagnosed with complex regional pain syndrome because I was setting world records as an athlete while I had it. And most people with complex regional pain syndrome can't really like get out of bed. They need trouble. They need help moving up and down stairs. Um, they're usually chronically depressed and uh, cortisol resistant. Um, so I wasn't really looked at as possible for that. They assumed that I had nerve cancer that was swallowing my whole arm. When they found it was complex regional pain syndrome, they assumed it was swallowing my whole arm. It's not. You can see um, from here upwards that there's like a sort of mutated skin. Um, it doesn't continue down the arm, but the symptoms were. And so they thought that I was going to have to deal with the paralyzed hand for the rest of my life and an extreme sort of post-surgical dose of painkillers as well. And I said, hey, look, the rheumatoid symptoms aren't traveling as far as the neuromuscular symptoms are. Maybe mm -hmm. just region in the upper arm is dealing with so much knotting 
because I have been training as an athlete through it, which is atypical. So I had to go and be involved in my own diagnosis and curing process because there was just so much unusual feedback in my case that it, it took me, you know, seeing a neurologist, um, New Zealand's top sports physios, and actually being the one to lead and piece together my entire... You had to become your own advocate, which, uh, yeah. which is really the only way that you solve these things. Yeah, yeah, especially especially when there's an extreme rheumatoid uh, thing present because everyone's rheumatic responses are somewhat individualized, in some cases extremely unusual and individualized. And uh, a lot of these different doctors and, and sort of uh, healthcare providers, they're they deal with the symptoms and I'm not trying to, right. I'm not trying to attack them at all. Like you can be an excellent neurologist and not understand the neuromuscular system. You can be mm -hmm. an ex physio and not necessarily know even anything about like the rheumatic crossover of neurology, let alone how that can filter down into the neuromuscular system. So mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not even putting these people down. In fact, I was really lucky over a long period of time to find healthcare providers who are like, hey, this kid might have a high school dropouts level of education, but he's making sense and he's doing a good right. job porting between us. Mm. And yeah, there are a few healthcare providers who are basically like, I feel like this man's affronting my academic authority. And so they just sort of like called me a drug addict and a liar and tried to make things difficult for me. But then I'd find ones who are, you know, a bit more, uh, Useful. Well, empathetic. It's, it's, it's empathetic yeah. and understanding, I think, right? Yeah, well, like, what I, what, what really stood out to me was, like, for example, you're not supposed to really deal with um, dry needling, which is, a, you know, it's a westernized, uh, you know, very empirically backed science that uses acupuncture needles, not in the way of acupuncture itself, but by right. disrupting um, knotted um, muscle tissue. This was discovered when a muscle relaxant drug was being tested and they found that the intravenous uh, administration of it was causing a massive positive while the, um, the, the oral version was doing nothing. And then mm -hmm. they found that the placebo that was being administered directly into muscle knots with the needle was still yielding results. And so they found, okay, it wasn't even a placebo. It was the fact that we have a natural response when we're getting stabbed by right. something small for our muscle knots to suddenly release. And so my muscle knots were coming from the result of an idiopathic pain thing. And mm -hmm. I had a lot of neuroplasticity in there. So normally they say in an extreme case, you still shouldn't even be doing more than five sessions of needling to an area. But mine mm -hmm. was so astronomically nuanced and extreme that I was like, no, 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 needle me twice a week and I'm going to run a lifting schedule so that when they needled it and I had about 48, 72 hours where that muscle was no longer choking the nerve, therefore screwing with the actual um, functionality of muscles further down the line that had been subject right. to thing because they hadn't even received a signal from the brain in over a year. Um, I was giving myself leeway for a couple of days um, from that um, treatment and mm -hmm. um, then giving myself a couple of days where my muscles could actually receive a signal from the brain and I could use that to rehab myself. And I was doing a couple what of were, things. 
what were they giving you up until that point? Like, were they, was it gabapentin? Was it opioids? Because, well, I get into my, my, my story. They gave me a large dose of tramadol and a good luck kit. Um, yeah. <laughs> was really what I was given. So they gave me 200 milligrams, which is the same you'd get, um, you know, right after a surgery with no opioid tolerance. Um, mm. So they got me very hooked on that. And uh, to the point where, you know, like it didn't even work soon. Like my, my, my condition adjusts really quickly to mm. pretty much every drug that's not like, a, you know, cannabis based. Um, that's one of the only ones that I can keep at a stable level without having to continuously increase it and increase side effects right. and, and all and what have you. And what, what's really fun, like this sounds quite scientific and it sounds quite clean, but I'd like to paint a picture of what it really looked like in the mm. early stages. There was me uh, probably unable after a whole life of uh, being an elite athlete, unable to really do a single chin up, couldn't do a push up without hurting my shoulder. Um, I'm weighing at this point just over 100 kilograms, so somewhere maybe about 230 guinea mm. fat, looking terrible. I can't sleep for more than three hours on end. That's when I'm at the peak of the opioid, so I'm not even sleeping properly. I'm just sort of sedating myself out of consciousness. Right. So my articulation's all over the place. I sound like a drug addict. I look terrible. I've got bags under my eyes. Um, and yet I'm coming in and I'm trying my best to talk about like advanced anatomy, biomechanics. And so mm. these poor physios are seeing this guy <laughs> who looks like he's just rolled in off the street and in a couple of times has, and I'm walking in there and I know that the drugs they're giving me, if anything, they're worsening my ability, mind muscle connection. So I'm right. walking in, I'm smelling like wheat mm -hmm. and I'm saying, hey, doc, I'm on uh, experimental uh, drugs that I've found through various sources mm -hmm. and also on a microdose of psilocybin. Can we try jamming more needles into my muscles than usual today? Because I've essentially figured out how to make sure that I have uh, less rejection of this form of treatment than usual and an increased amount of neuroplasticity. Mm. And so what I'm pitching to them is really something that should be like a PhD level study that would be very hard, but still possible to get through an ethics committee. And I'm basically walking in there being like, Hey, I'm full of a couple of street drugs and some weird stuff I've sourced from God yeah. knows where. And I don't look like an athlete. I look like a local, like alcoholic or something. Like my, my health is terrible. And I'm sitting there talking to them about how uh, some of my injuries are banged up from engaging in vigilantism, um, how I'm trying to deal with the PTSD of having been a fugitive. So it takes me a while to detune my nervous system before they can jam a needle. So bear with me while I go through my breathing yeah. exercises. I sound insane to these people. And it took them about two years of seeing me before they were like, hang on, this guy has managed to not cook himself despite running experiments on himself that seem to shift every 12 weeks. Mm. Um, he's now in here doing 31 handed push ups, 
uh, he's, he's actually resembling an Olympic athlete more than a regular human. And I like that. They basically congratulated me for putting up with how humiliating it must've been to represent my own truth through that time period. Um, and like I said to them, I'm like, I knew how ridiculous I sounded. It's just like, what was I supposed to say? This is, this is it. This is it for me. Like it was, um, it was difficult. I was in, I was in excruciating pain with basically yeah. hellfire on a whole limb of my body and had to try and study like a, a bunch of interdisciplinary neurology and use to, myself to basically come up with, a, with a, a model that actually worked for you. Yeah. Yeah. And the, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm grateful all day, every day that I even have a functional body. So all the outside noise bounces off real quick, but it's pretty yeah. funny because <laughs> like on the other end of it, um, it's amazing how quickly, like people seem to have forgotten that I was, I was just a couple of years ago, that guy who couldn't even, you know, move furniture around without his girlfriend's help. Yeah. And now they're calling me a jock. Like I didn't have to basically become a neurologist to even get here and they're treating me like i'm like i'm an idiot with a genetic gift again and i'm like mm. that is awesome like insulting etc but in the larger context of like yeah. being a cripple having been in that much pain having been uh you know just insulted on a day-to-day basis trying to seek help um by the system by most of the people within it like it's it's left me with a an unbelievable invigoration for life. How yeah. Long, so how long was it while um, but between developing these symptoms and then the diagnosis of uh, complex regional pain syndrome that you were um, going going through that process of of being an advocate for yourself and and um, trying to figure out this diagnosis. To then, once it was figured out, uh, actually getting to a point where where your pain was possible to be to be managed uh, in, on a realistic, ongoing basis. From about like twelve to sixteen, um, I lied about these conditions and said that I was fine because I didn't want them affecting uh, my career as a basketballer. Um, at 15, I came first in nationwide combine for mental and physical conditioning run by Under Armour out of IMG Academies. Mm-hmm. So it was relatively big deal um, hosted at like the real frontier for that kind of sport science. And uh, I had all of these issues undiagnosed. I was starting to deal with the paralysis down the left arm. Um, and I'd also developed from a separate injury, the same thing into the left big toe. So I was functioning with about a third of an ankle Mm -hmm. and I still managed to become the best athlete in basketball in the USA. Um, other than one other person who was in, in college age was the only person that scored higher than me. So I was higher than all but one college age tested person and all of the high school athletes. So I was doing a really good job at lying about it, but there was there was things showing to me, like for example, my weight room numbers were going up that should have been increasing my vertical jump and my sprint times, 
they were increasing my times on the floor, but I wasn't jumping higher. So I was aware fairly early on that I was starting to screw up things like the elastic effect of the ankle and starting mm -hmm. to accept more and more wear and tear. And I was producing force at an NBA level, but I was producing it with a very, very um, sub-optimal method and very overtuned. Um, like I was very, very right. overtuned in that terms of what what was producing the force, so that I could produce it wrong to an adequate standard, and that that led to the eventual complete destruction of my functionality which at 24 25 um completely was just ruining my life at that stage like i had a like my hand was it would just sit here sort of shaking it was not just unfunctional it was worse than unfunctional it was twitching and mm. and uh, spasming quite wildly it was not very useful guitar mm. or you know any of the things that i really cared about it, it wasn't there and the pain was so bad that i wasn't really uh functional on any in any intellectual capacity as well you know it touches it, it on got two, that two things um one is the amount of like just general knowledge people need to have to really be able to, to help diagnose these things themselves because in many cases the doctors aren't there and and the second is you know just how detrimental um to life not looking at alternatives to opioids can be specifically within the medical establishment, right? So we, we've talked about this before, but I mean, I had a, I had a friend who's a doctor who was doing pain management who basically let his license lapse, you know, and, and just decided to quit the hospital he's working with because the only option they're afforded with is to prescribe opioids. And it's a pretty broad range of what they've got out there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the same thing I went through. It's just I had to, I had to wean myself off over almost two years. Yeah, it's a, that's that's so rough. And make your body go through that withdrawal while yeah. you're also dealing with cancer is insane. Like I at least got to, I got to build up um, like a surplus of vigor mm -hmm. for that, that event. Like I was like, I'm not going to just like hit the target. I'm going to go through the target. And so I made sure like I was capable of handling like 20 sets near failure per week per body part. So that when I pulled uh, the rug out on my entire nervous system and went through that withdrawal, um, I could do it all at once and mm -hmm. I could handle it. And I could still, you know, like I, I wasn't digesting well. So I was having, you know, mass gainer shakes and, I managed to really plan it out to just sort of plow through that. But having to navigate that while you're also like, you're not able to sit, like you can't go that hard in that, in that right. situation. Deal with a certain intensity of withdrawal because your body's already dealing with its own issues. Like I had to, you know, basically just like plow a car. Like it was a Dukes of Hazard type of situation yeah. where I'm just like it through a blockade. Whereas you had to like Tom Clancy that like you had to go, you had to sneak Bro. through a whole skyscraper full of spies getting through every little yeah, layer. So let me, let me, let me tell a little bit about what, 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 what I just went through, what I'm still going through. So I'm, I'm currently kind of functionally handicapped. Um, and it's, it's because of a variety of things going through this. So in December, 2020, um, I was feeling awful and I just like, 
you know, finished running for office and a bunch of other stuff and didn't do bad, like, you know, 15% composite in a, in a district that was wildly, you know, in favor of the other party. Um, and it was the first time someone, you know, um, had run and run like the old, like Harlem Republican line, um, you know, since probably like the 90s. Um, but that sort of was an aside. So December I get diagnosed. I immediately have to start like advocating from my from the first biopsy because they hauled me into Harlem Hospital and I'd wanted to go to Mount Sinai, but you know how the ambulances are. They're like, well, we have a contract to take you here. And so the first thing they did was they, they identified something in an MRI and they wanted to do a biopsy and they go, we have to take the entire lymph node out of your neck. And I was like, well, can you guarantee to me that there's not going to be long-term ramifications from like basically cutting a hole in my lymphatic system, right? And they 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 were like, uh, uh, and I was like, well, I need that in writing. And so then they were like, well, we'll just take a piece. And I'm like, I thought so, <laughs> right? Um, and you know, I got <laughs> so so dumb, and I got diagnosed with cancer. And um, you know, I was like, okay, well, I, I need to get myself over to Mount Sinai. So in the process of getting over there, Harlem Hospital loses my biopsy. All right. Um, had basically tried to push me to Bellevue Hospital because uh, they just wanted me out of the bed. And I was like, no, I'm going to get in there. There's, I know there's a bed. Um, made a couple of phone calls. I had to call myself and, and tell them who, what, what was going on and like that I'm like locally involved in this and that, and I got a bed. Um, but they weren't like really great advocates. And, you know, the next thing we had to get into was the whole chemo thing, right? Because the only option that you have is chemo especially like my, my tumors were huge they're like 23 centimeters um yeah i'd like pr practically collapsed in the street and uh yeah yeah and um yeah at some point i'll throw one of the mri pictures up i just got to redact a bunch of stuff um but so they gave me a course of treatment now it's stage three testicular cancer and so for that the course of treatment is 30 years old okay and what people don't tell you is that our oncologists are the only doctors who are paid, not only for being a doctor, but they are paid by the pharmaceutical companies to sell chemotherapy. So when you start looking at a bunch of other options out there, you know, the radiation therapy, I don't know what the compensation model is and a variety of other things, but no, I'll get to that. Um, but, you know, it's just like, <laughs> there's isn't a lot of incentive for innovation inside of this and even with the cancer studies and other things that are going on and going into germ therapy and talking about vaccines and this and that this stuff is all nascent like it's it, it hasn't been tested it hasn't like a run through trials like they don't know what the effects of it are going to be and they don't know how effective it's going to be um and there's one or two you know trials where they've like modified cells and they're now attacking it and that's great but it only works on certain cancers and all these cancers are similar but different you know, in terms of, of how they are um, and how they affect the body and, you know, the detriment they have and how quickly they're going to eat you. Um, so I ended up immediately on chemo. And once they started putting me on the chemo, they immediately had to give me opioids because the pain was so bad, right? So <laughs> I was started mm -hmm. on, on almost 200 micrograms of fentanyl, transdermal, 24-7, all right? In addition to that, I had oral morphine, and uh, there were points where I had a morphine auto-injector, which basically mean this thing was like tied into my IV 
and it fired into me like you know, roughly about every 30 minutes so just fire another dose of morphine so for for probably a year yeah it was pretty close to a year um because i spent like eight nine months in that hospital um i was doped up and you know the the family members i have in my life and you know friends of mine they're like you're like incoherent like completely incoherent and it took me another year and a half after that first year to wean myself off of the fentanyl to the point and degree that my pain management doctor is like, you should be very proud of yourself. You know, not everyone does this. And, and that's what, because I had to wean off of fentanyl and I had to wean off of um, morphine. Uh, and then, you know, we had some additional like morphine patches, but I have, I still have like all of this frigging morphine sitting in bottles, you know left over and like every now and then when the pain's really bad i might pop one but I've, I've effectively weaned off of the entire stuff and that took a year and a half and then that's also going through you know five rounds of chemotherapy and then the craziest part was i still had like about 12 percent of the cancer left and so they go uh well we'd like to recommend you for this <laughs> for this trial and uh i'm gonna try on my ass because like you know they'll kill the cancer but they'll also kill the patient right and they're like, okay, well, here's what we want to do. We're going to put you in the hospital. And you're going to stay in the hospital. And we're going to give you triple chemo. And I was like, bro, after single chemo, I could barely walk, okay? Like, if there was a point, I couldn't drive a car. I couldn't do this. Couldn't do that. Couldn't get out of bed. And I'm like, now you want to give me three times that? I was like, yeah, you're probably going to kill me. Because they were talking about limited longevity, like all these side effects that come from that. And, and the thing that I thought was super cavalier about them after I went through the, the first rounds of chemo, I just had a doctor walk in and he goes, hey, you know, um, I don't know if anyone mentioned this, but uh, uh, the bleomycin had some side effects. And, and this wasn't in the state of literature. And we're, I'm talking to some, some attorneys about this, but it's still a long conversation. But they're like, just wanted to let you know that you lost 30% of your lung capacity. So, like, you probably shouldn't smoke or anything anymore. And it was like literally that cavalier. And it was then it was like, bye, you know, like he like walked out of the room and I never saw this doctor again. And, you know, you're dealing with rotating physicians. So like you have a primary oncologist, but all the other doctors you talk to, um, you know, it's different every week almost. And so now you have like dozens of doctors that like know all your business, you know, it's weird. And it's, it's, it's not, I think that the way that it, I understand it's a teaching hospital, but there should be a little bit more privacy for the patient. Um, and then you, what you do, you find out later is that they also have private wings where I think it's in addition to health insurance, where people are paying on top of that. I mean, you can get a thousand count Egyptian cotton sheets, you can get all this other stuff. And I only found that because they let you walk the wards, you know, because you have to get your, your power to walk back. And we just discovered it. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Um, but you know, there's, there's this dichotomy in healthcare of that, right? Um, of like the, the level of service and the type of stuff they offer. And if there's advanced, I, I was never offered stem cell. I was never offered a bunch of these things. So I got this cancer left and, um, you know, that would eventually kill me. I have to do something about that. So I went through four different sets of doctors, um, that were unconventional, you know, not looking at chemo or radiotherapy as well as, um, two scientists until I found someone I'm working with now and I'm taking a higher dose. Um, you know, it's, it's Delta eight, so it's not THC. So it doesn't, if I travel, it's legal. 
Um, but it's basically 3,000 milligrams of THC plus, you know, a couple other things in there um, rectally administered, and it's it's killing the cancer. Because, like, I, I had gone back and got another PET scan. They're like, I don't know what you, he's like, I don't know what you're doing. We keep doing it because now we're down to, like, 8% of the cancer left. But, you know, <laughs> the remainder of this, like, getting out of my, my system can take months um, up to a year. And, um, and there was a whole pain management issue. And it was the weaning off issue and the, the, you know, not being coherent issue and all these other things. And that's what they don't talk to you about. And then you think that the average person is not you or me, right? You know, they're not advocating for themselves inside of the hospital. Um, they're not forcibly trying to wean themselves off dealing with the pain, right? They're, they're just dealing with it. And most, most people can't deal with like, like the tendency of nurses, like they'd rather, and I can kind of get it at the same time, mm -hmm. even if I'm going to complain about it, they kind of feel a need to like treat you like, Hey, stop talking about your case. Like you can understand it. Like they try to beat you down because like most of the time they are dealing with like people who've got some really kooky ideas that are trying to treat themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of need, be really rude almost like a welfare process where they try to be as rude as possible and you, you basically have to have a sales skill set to get and can find a decision maker who has an yeah. open mind it, you, like you have to actually like like i had to develop at, at first there was sort of like some reactive handling but i had to deal with like a proactive approach of going like how can i speak to someone who's going to respect me who's going to hear me out who's going, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I realize I'm not even going to get effective treatment if I can't go through that. And it consistently requires being able to like stone face your way through a couple of conversations where you get talked to like an absolute crackpot. A, a crackpot, a child, an idiot, uh, you get belittled, you know? It's like, well, the doctors know best, you know nothing type thing. Yeah. And, and yeah. the difference with both of you is that you're capable of going through that process to have those conversations with the relevant people and and I, put yourself I, I, face I, to I, face with I, them. But then you also need to be yeah. coherent enough to uh, to actually communicate the 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 point that you're trying to make and um, should, whatever science there is need, behind it. Yeah, you shouldn't need those skill sets at the levels that Oz and I have them at just to get looked after when you're supposed yeah. to be the one who's, who's downed and hurt, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, I'd say it was no less difficult. Um, I'd say it was more difficult than it is to try and talk to someone who's like, like, like I had a harder time going through that process than I have having the same conversation at the same level of technical complexity mm -hmm. with a PhD neuroscientist. Because that person, I can at least, as soon as I've laid out a bunch of the correct terminologies to them, they've gone, oh, this guy's at least this far ahead. Yeah. And they come forward. Right. And that's a style of conversation that you have to deal with when you're doing stuff like uh, politics on Oz's side. Like, or like, like startups are a constant thing of this. Like, Oz constant. is amazing. Absolutely constant. And you, you have to be able to like, straight up be like, okay, like a normal conversation between two smart people might take 15 to 30 minutes before you end up on the same problem, focused mm -hmm. on the same thing and knowing you're actually on the same page. And you kind of have to learn yeah. how to speak that up in, in the various things we do of being like, bam, here is the current issue. 
Uh, like, and you're, you're communicating so much in such a short period of time talking about like, oh, I've read about point A, point B, B and point C. And now you, you, you've managed to communicate so much about yourself. But it's a, it's a and where you, state you talk about, right? It's, it's, it's when, when we just start connecting on knowing that you know that so I can move to the next issue. Because yes. isn't that, isn't that what most conversations are? And, and I think the challenge a lot of people have is that they can't actually connect on that issue. So they can never get to the next issue. Or if they do, it's kind of like a, a, a clumsy way of getting there. This, I mean, that's where you get yeah. a lot of the argument with this. This, this is why our conversations yeah. go for six hours, Tristan. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, or three but, hours but, before we shoot the podcast. <laughs> here's, here's, here's the crazy thing about it. For you to be able to speak to a decision maker in the medical field, you're mm -hmm. going to have to speak fluently and with a complexity that many of the people you have to get through failed in an academic setting right. to present that level of technical understanding. And so then when they see you drugged up with no degrees in their field, using terms that they fumbled and, you know, ended up lower on the ladder than they imagined they'd be because of, they're mm -hmm. just like, shut up, drug addict. You don't understand this. I couldn't. Therefore, there's no way in hell you can, especially when you're dealing with like, yeah, like there, there, there's added added questions like. And you'll on get one, that for a lengthy period of time. On one arm, I've got the CRPS. On the other, I have my traditional Maori tamoko, like tattooing. And so mm -hmm. over here, like I noticed my medical treatment before getting the tattoo and afterwards, that like they kind of take the tattoo as like, oh, you're committing to owning the, you know, darky side of your roots. Yeah. Right. So the ones who might have given me leeway because of my vocab, because I have green eyes, etc., those ones are just like nut, nah, you're getting treated the same as, you know, like whatever. You you came out with slick words, you know how to use Google and you scored a lot of drugs off us. I can see through do, do you. you know, do you know how many times I had to I had to like literally sit there and have conversations to wrang my wrangle myself out of like some Tuskegee experiment type situation? you know, in, in terms of like what they were prescribing for cancer care. I mean, it's like a triple chemo. Like you have no idea who's paying. You know, I started looking at this and I'm like, you idiots are making like half a million plus per patient in this study. That's why you want to do it. Not because it's efficacious, not because it's solving anything. You're just kind of ruling the therapies out so, and you're using human subjects. Oz, That's what, what, sort of... what was the, uh, what was the impact to your life of, of, not just the, the chemo, the cancer, but also trying to wean off these heavy pain med meds. I mean, I lost two years. Um, you know, taking was with the cancer. Genius and making him deal with being doped up for a oh, while as well. The worst. It was so the worst. And, you know, it's like two years of cancer therapy and this and that, and just like constantly in the hospital or, or constantly just going home and back to the hospital, right? And then infections and, and uh, uh, you know, like I had my, one time my leg was infected and they had to put me on like um, full IV antibiotics and those things are crazy expensive, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, by the grace of God, like, you know, the health insurance was decent and covered most of it. But like, you know, most of my savings are blown um, because I couldn't really fully work for two years um you know it's you have to take some loans out you have to do some other stuff i mean it's it's just complicated 
And then at the same point in time, you're you know, you have to get back on your feet. You have to take new contracts to do things. Um, and you have to do all of this while you're in a hospital bed or you're in bed. You know, so it's been really by the grace of God, I've been able to do a lot of remote work. Um, I mean, COVID helped with that. It was the same timing. But, you know, it's the amount of protocol stuff I had to go through just because of, you know, being a cancer patient during COVID, right? I mean, uh, that was just crazy. Um, and then, you know, just seeing how cavalier they are about this stuff in terms of, you know, providing you care, but literally only to a certain level. And then after that, it's like no stem cell conversations, none of the stuff that I've had in the past year, you know, of going on the alternative stuff. Cause I'm currently right now in like almost year three of dealing with this. Actually, I'm in year three of dealing with this cancer. Um, you know, and, and hopefully by the beginning of year four, I'm cured with it. But if I hadn't gone down this path and, and did all the research and talked to all the scientists and talked to the doctors, and that's a lot to do, you know, because like people are like, why didn't you post this on Facebook earlier? And I'm like, if I posted this, I barely have any energy. Like currently I'm functional about, mm. you know, like seven, eight hours a day max. And then, you know, I got to like lie down and like my body gets tired and things like that. Um, you know, I can slow walk places, but then I get winded. Um, you know, it's, it's just challenging. Right. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, I just, I think more people in America need to, and globally need to understand that, that like, whether it's a chronic condition or it's something like cancer, that the the big challenge is not just understanding it but it's understanding the fact that there's not like a set date like he asked like hey when's your cancer therapy going to be over and i'm like this isn't like physical therapy i'm like 14 more sessions you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's not like that <laughs> and, and they get so confused about it and um you know and and empathetically it, it's very difficult for them people don't understand that like you you just you can't work sometimes like sometimes you're in so much chronic pain it's awful and you know hopefully i'm able to work through all this but there's one other thing i forgot to mention is neuropathy and neuropathy is basically like where it feels like your nerves are on fire yeah and um was that part of the I've withdrawal had, no it was part of the withdrawal it was part of the chemo like after effects mm. like chemo will give you horrible horrible neuropathy and until you know, like I had to start like a couple of flush cycles and I'm doing a bunch of other things um, in relation to the, the alternative stuff that I'm on. Um, and weirdly some frequency therapy and um, that's helped the neuropathy. But, you know, it can still be bad at days. And honestly, it wasn't until like, I want to say six months ago that I could fully feel my feet. Mm. Like they're uh, still a little numb in, in places, but, you know, it's like I got about... 85 percent feeling yeah wow so uh, i it, it always baffles me the way that um people describe their experiences with um even across a, a wide number of different conditions that people uh have to have to manage and go through their experience mm -hmm. with hospital systems medical systems and um pain management strategies uh, mm -hmm. particularly around the fact that the pain management strategies that are employed by, uh, by physicians rely mm -hmm. really 
heavily on on you've got gabapentin and you've got opiates that's it yeah gabapentin and opiates yeah and and that these are um effectively you know synthesized versions of street drugs that uh impact people and and even even um even even drugs that are used in a medical setting that are used on the street like Mm. fentanyl um and I, i know that um that all of us have experienced in that, and I know that you wanted to talk, to talk on that that it's, note, Oz. So. It's, 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 forgive how the sentence sounds or comes across, but it's, it's almost disrespectful to how enterprising humans through the course of history have been about causing addictions to uh, opioids, to call it a street mm. drug. Mm. Like, there's, this is this is a this is a game it older used to than be a very high class drug. You used to smoke it in dens, you know. Exactly, and it it's, and a low class drug. They also smoked it. it in dens. It's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic game that humans play of getting people hooked on this shit. Um, and it's like you can see it in um like I before I got diagnosed, I just had a bunch of pain that I was honestly scared of even disclosing. I didn't want people to know I was vulnerable in that type of way because of the way I was living. It wasn't smart for me to even broadcast that I had this issue. I used to wear, um, like, uh, you know, one of those hoodies that has the little thumb hole so that I could hide the fact that my left hand was using a um, brace for a while, Mm -hmm. because if I held it forced in a neutral position, I still had function of my fingers. And so there was points where I was in weird situations and I was scaling buildings while hiding the fact that like I couldn't even move my wrist. There was weird crap yeah. going on. I, and in that, I was finding really expedient ways to try and deal with my pain because I was like, it's fine. Some physio is going to figure it out and it's going to take eight weeks because it feels like it's soft tissue in nature. So yeah. I'm just like, whatever, it can't take me that many switches before I find the thing and I rehab it relatively quickly. I'm young. I, I got this. I got this. And so I was accepting dumbass ideas like, you know, just uh, opioids or even alcohol for a while, just being like, whatever, like this makes the pain go away. This makes the muscles yeah. relax. And so I went through cycles of like getting on and pulling myself off like serious amounts of alcohol benzos um random opiates like even making my own out of uh, morphine uh from um poppy seeds and and shit like that and Mm -hmm. as i was going through this whole process like i kept having to pull myself off and it was not good and it was it was it was detrimental to my healing process in general um but it was easier for me to standardize these things whereas cannabis was difficult because i couldn't find it in any standardized way until i started manufacturing it myself that was the only way i could get we, any we, stand- have, we have the blessing here of it becoming recreationally legal recently but medically legal previously and the two states that i'm bouncing in between for therapy um in new york and another state they both have the medical legal so th- there's a lot of utility there um in yeah. terms of accessing it but to to your point like if you're anywhere else in the world where this is legal um, or you have to get it in some sort of a gray market. Uh, it's really challenging, you know, because doctors have, you go in PubMed, there's like 30,000 articles plus about the endocannabinoid system that the body has, right? 
And that's where a lot of this uptake happens and this is how it works. And, and this is something that's existed, you know, in, in humans um, pretty much to the story of Adam and Eve, right? It's, it's there, it's built in. Um, and legally in the West, I mean, marijuana was used as a cure-all the same way cocaine was. Well, cocaine was like a tooth powder and, you know, the base of Coca-Cola and a variety of other things. Um, but marijuana became illegal in the United States, largely at the behest of Standard Oil, who found out that if you, if you took an, uh, a, a drum, a 50-gallon drum of hemp oil, that you could make cleaner more bioavailable like you know carbon neutral so to speak but it, it wouldn't put the the emissions out that a, a gallon of petroleum gasoline would put out and you, if you consider what henry ford said henry ford said that if every american can have an acre and, and farm that acre and grow hemp that they would have the ability to make fuel for their vehicle food for their home you know, rope and, and materials to build the house um, and enough material to make clothes, right? Because you can, all of these things come from that. Um, and it'd been kind of stamped out. And so now you see this coming back here and then and over there. But to your, to your point, I digress. But, you know, like to your point, like if there's not access, there's also not knowledge. And the oh, knowledge I that there is, is, is typically propaganda. This is this is a really good tangent for for putting things into um into perspective in how long a lot of these games have been played. You know, like mm -hmm. it's quite it's quite easy to go. Surely it's not as ridiculous as it looks up front. It's like no, things have been progressively more and more ridiculous for a long time in yep. both of these industries, poppy or hemp. And like the the biggest thing that I saw through the process of, you know, like I get hooked on this one thing, a doctor tells me benzos might be a good idea. This is causing a, you know, exponential tolerance. So I say, I want to get off all of the things that they offer you when you're dealing with these troubles, they're like, Hey, have you considered a larger ball and chain? Like, yeah, they're, they're, they're like, Hey, I know that you're an oxycodone now, but we could give you oxycodone and tramadol. Yeah yeah like they're like oh yeah this is this is no longer wait, working there's more, more would, you drugs? Be, or, would you also be interested in a 24-hour dosing fentanyl patch yeah and don't worry if you become too unfunctional of an addict we'll just move you into the methadone queue and yep. it's it's really clear like like in, like new zealand has a massive problem with binge drinking which leads to alcoholics quitting and then needing to go on benzos which are really poorly understood over here and mm -hmm. then uh, they move from like diazepam um onto clonazepam and then if you fail oh, to come off clonies jesus yeah if they if you fail to come off those then they put you on methadone like mm -hmm. they're just there's just there's just straight up an opportunism that's just like mm. do you know how many americans are addicted to clonopans to the point and degree that they have a nickname i mean and yeah. they, utilize, they utilize these things for all sorts of disorders you know um and and honestly they spent two sometime. generations like shoving it into kids over adhd issues you end up with a really quite complex issue where some people mm. need their nervous systems uh you know down -regulated 
regulated, so they need some sort of downer, but they've only got access to these ones that are not only addictive, but the only solution yep. to you reaching a tolerance where you're no longer getting the original point is to now get a deeper harpoon of another central nervous depressant. Um, and then in here, you've also got the other people who are being tempted because their lives are probably falling apart from the chronic issue, possibly mm -hmm. terminal illness. And they've also got the warm hug of opioid addiction tempting them. Um, oh, and so socially consider this. It's not, it's not like the 1970s where the doctors were prescribing uppers and downers. They would take uppers in the morning and downers in the evening. It's to your point. It's one or the other. And what you do is you just push people down these roads that don't really have positive endpoints. Yeah. And the, the, the system over here um, increasingly manages to channel people onto methadone, which mm. is, I've never had to come off that, but I've come off tramadol. That was extremely difficult. Um, and that the, they like that there are some people who will never escape that from willpower. And they're mm -hmm. essentially just trying to give you as much of a dose that can get you addicted and be held there as a consumer without them accidentally yep. killing, which is think the about other. This. If, if they keep you on the methadone and their state funded programs or even privately funded programs, I mean, in Harlem, we have all these methadone clinics, okay? And we have people who are coming to these clinics all the way from Brooklyn in some points. And, and they literally will have these people almost for the rest of their life because in most cases there's a relapse, you know, they'll come back to it, they'll do heroin again, they'll come back to the methadone and it becomes this vicious cycle. And there's this new, uh, they started mixing like um, a horse tranquilizer in with the heroin recently. And so what's happening is on the injection sites, it, it's like, cannibalizing the flesh and so it starts turning into gangrene and they have to start doing all these amputations um and it was for months like the medical establishment didn't know what it was or how to treat it you just had like rotting flesh on someone's arm and someone's hand their fingertips that kind of a thing their legs right and it because it's so addictive it, it, it apparently increases the addictiveness of it and there's also fentanyl mixed in sometimes they just keep doing it until they die. And, and it's just a nightmare scenario in between what's in the street, what is going on from the medical establishment pushing this forward. I mean, there's the, the oxy uh, lawsuits that are now being settled and you know these manufacturers are having to pay out billions of dollars to states, right? But how much of that money really makes it back to the people that were affected? And then you have folks like us who've gone through serious health issues where Many people who have had major, major health problems, they end up stuck on the drugs hmm. or they end up stuck on some sort of pain management for neuropathy or chronic pain or something else for years and years and years. And that shortens their lifespans. And it just, it doesn't benefit people to do anything that's more valuable to society than just be someone who's suffering. Yeah. And it, and it seems like at the end of all of that, there's, um, regardless of the circumstance around the use of the drugs, there's a propensity towards death, fundamentally. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I can, I, that's very personal to me. You know, like, uh, this girl who I was friends with in high school and, you know, like senior year, she got pregnant and um, there was a, 
there's a it's like an old photo like an old polaroid of me like you know holding a fork to her stomach because she's italian it was like is it done yet type thing which i thought was kind of funny you know <laughs> then uh, still funny now but like a lot of people didn't like that um so anyways her son and her brother her brother had had played sports and had developed an oxy addiction right her son had you know it's just kind of this this middle class lower middle class i guess you'd call it in pittsburgh um which is where i grew up and um you know it's like the mills have had closed in the 80s a lot of like the the manufacturing started pulling out in the 90s and into the 00s and the teens like you you know service jobs or maybe you could get trained and end up in like healthcare service or as a nurse or something like that but there's not a lot of opportunity malls are empty a lot of other stuff's empty right the downtown's great but you go out into the suburbs and it's hit and miss it's either a successful suburb or it's a suburb that's dying and they were in one of the ones that was dying they were closer to greensburg and so anyways um her eldest son the one you know who is in the fork picture uh he got addicted on and off and had you know gotten clean gotten addicted again that kind of a thing and the two of them her brother and him had uh decided to do some heroin ended up being laced with a bunch of fentanyl uh they both immediately overdosed and uh weren't found until the next morning by a family member and you know i just i found all of this stuff out on facebook because i'm friends with all of her kids and her you know we've talked and stuff and i mean it's just a huge tragedy and this is now happening more and more and more across you know all ranks and files of society all levels of income um because this stuff is so pervasive and it's it's as easy for people to get as you know any other drug that's out there i mean if you can get marijuana you can get heroin in in most cities and in communities that are up and coming or working class it, it's just far far more accessible um and most of it is laced with this chinese fentanyl and this fentanyl is just killing people right left and center and there's you know there's the the policy to address this stuff is just such garbage from like border policy to you know figuring out how you're you're policing gangs to figuring out like how you're addressing the societal impacts of this where a lot of people are getting addicted and not off of it and not necessarily dealing with the methadone so they try to manage it themselves and just this the sheer volume of death that's coming from it like all the, and, and if not death all the ruined lives yeah. all the children that get caught in the mix yeah it, it seems all the children that but yeah. one thing i've seen classically with um athletes they get poorly in, they get like very injured and mm -hmm. their body's in a, in a poorly functional state and uh they lose that functionality they lose a lot of what gives them their their confidence and their personality and they're usually with a partner with a really high sex drive and now their their health is is downturned their partner's not getting what they're used to instead they're seeing someone who's 20 percent mentally functional and zero percent the physical specimen they were and mm -hmm. so this the spiral sort of usually it begins with hey you're injured 
now you're on drugs and they're kind of like, oh, I don't know how long I'm going to be out for. I guess I'm going to be high for a while. Ha ha. They're usually quite yeah, like, but, but, but what and makes then, it worse is no, think about this. Okay. I'm sorry to interject, but if you take away a man's primary method of succeeding or earning money, that man will most likely put himself into a debt spiral. It's a self-actualization yes. problem. Yeah. Yes. Well, like usually what ends up happening is like I've found like a lot of men's support networks leave them. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I mean, look, I joined fraternities because by the time you get into your 40s, they're either married or they're dead or they've moved away or something else. And unless you live in a really big city where you can make new friends all the time, it's just those long standing relationships that you had are gone. So the levels of trust that you have with people are different. You know, the levels of engagement are different. So, Oz, this is a, a question that I want to ask you as a um, almost from a, a politician standpoint, because it seems like mm -hmm. the fentanyl-related overdose with recreational drug use uh, it, it has effectively become ubiquitous, particularly in uh, in the United States. I, I don't think it's such a mm -hmm. big problem in in Australia, but it is. Um, starting to it's huge it's absolutely huge starting to develop and and material materialize here um i think that there's from my standpoint two approaches to to this that are that are important to consider and the, and the first is mm. as you were saying from that that self-actualization standpoint what what is it that um that prevents people from using these drugs that are laced with Mm -hmm. with um you know these these de effectively dead deadly levels of of cut in drugs for um so what what is it that will stop people from from using those things and, and further from that the biggest the, the, the biggest thing is for yeah. stopping those uh those drugs being cut into um cut into otherwise not obviously not healthy <laughs> not healthy substances yeah. to use but ones that 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 wouldn't they wouldn't die and overdose overdose otherwise so there, there's two schools of thought on this and you know one is what we're going to see how this plays out in america because or really in north america um because this isn't something that north americans have dealt with you know the full legalization of drugs so if you look at canada and i think it's alberta um it may not be Alberta, but they, there's one territory that has done a full legalization of all drugs. Okay. Now, if you look historically at the data where they have done this, and this is only in two European countries, um, there was a big upswing in use of drugs for a period of time, and then it dropped significantly, right? And it, it sort of moderated itself out. And we're talking in Europe, these are largely secular societies. Um, so, you know, it's like what prevents this type thing. I think the two biggest things in America and even globally are faith and family. Faith is, you know, you have a framework to work in and it's not all, it's not a hundred percent because people still get dragged in from faith and, you know, where they have strong family structures that, that happens. But I'd say, you know, having, having, um, an identity that's rooted in, in a relationship with God is one. Um, having strong family structures that can be there for you is the second thing. Um, and then the third is community, right? Are you part and, and are you a member of a community? Do you feel engaged? 
Um, and that's sometimes where religion will give you that, but oftentimes where family will give you that. I was going to say many that, times there's, yeah. that, yeah. Um, that, yeah, that, but that the, strong relationship between faith and community is, is often what people point to as the most important aspect of their religion. Yeah. Mm. Um, but let's say that you're secular, you know, community functions very much in, in that, that format. If the community is positive, if you are surrounding yourself with people that can kind of help you become a better you or, you know, support you in your endeavors or, you know, kind of even like check you when something's wrong. Um, Team sport, where I found that. Yeah. 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 But, you know, you know, the detrimental effects of social media, I mean, in the U.S., we've got 40 plus high school and, and like grade school districts that are suing the tech giants. You've got states suing the tech giants because it's just altering behavior because we're, we're making everyone become performative. We're, we're making everyone in it for things that are vapid and not necessarily of societal benefit. Um, you know, we're making, we're making our, our daughters pose to sell weight gainer on Instagram and, we're making our sons do stupid things, asking people uh, dumb questions or throwing eggs at them, uh, you know, to, to sell the sponsorship for some awful product on TikTok. Um, and, and, you know, there's additional examples of that all over the board. Um, but inside of all of that, you know, I think people get lost. And I think inside of this postmodern, uh, you know, Western world that we're living in, because the Eastern world is still very different, right? And this goes from, you know, the Asian countries to, I mean, even Australia, as you're saying, like a lot of these things aren't there, but, you know, the, the Islamic countries, some of the African countries, um, you know, and other parts of like Central Asia, it's a little different mm. um, because, you know, it's like there, there's, there's already known groups that are addicted to stuff. Um, it's culturally very different. It's usually, mo that's more opioids, but that's like literally opium. Um, you know, or cot, which is like this leaf that's chewed or, you know, a couple other things like that. But it's also considered like a low class thing there. Here, it affects everyone, everywhere. Doesn't matter how much money you make or, or whatever. And, and I think if you have those three pieces, that, that's going to prevent a lot of it. It's going to kind of give you some, some reins to pull you back in to like kind of reevaluate things. Um, where people don't have the support systems, where people's only support systems are going online, and or we live in, I hate to, to put it this way, but it's when we live in this, this perpetual trolling culture, which isn't like trolling that Tristan used to do, which was just like, haha, who are you? More of like, you know, I'll just drag you for no reason. Mm. Like where everything on social is just constantly getting dragged, you know, that, that leads to very negative outcomes. When bullying is to the point and degree that like young girls as young as 11 will commit suicide in their own schools, okay, mm. from, from the type of bullying that goes on. And when that bullying becomes dimensional, it just doesn't end at school. It's online. It's constant. And I mean, you could be like midnight and you just flip your phone open and you look and you're just getting, you know, dinged by whoever those bullies are and their friends. And it's just a glom on thing. Um, you know, it's it's the digital culture that makes this very pervasive. And then the nature of stress and the nature of stress at work and those types of things, that, that makes it, uh, you know, also pervasive. But then, you know, we have a, a new level of party culture. Like, 
I mean, I remember like frat parties and, you know, just even clubs and this and that in New York. And it wasn't on the level it is now, you know, I mean, they're all different. I think they're a lot less fun, but the drug use is just everywhere. Like every, I mean, it's, you can go to the bars these days and like some dude will offer you Coke. Um, and that's just like, you know, because you're talking to someone and, and it's, it's this mm -hmm. pervasive nature inside of, it, you know, inside of just where people are lost is what leads from one drug to another drug to the harder drugs. And, um, you know, in, in America, like the fixing of it, I mean, one is you need some sort of strong border policy to catch this stuff. Um, two, you need to have some sort of concerted effort with different law enforcement departments from the ATF to Border Patrol to uh, the FBI to, you know, state and local police um, to basically catch the gangs that are trafficking this because there's all these new gangs like MS-13, um, Trece, you know, is what it used to be that uh, we have to contend with and they're everywhere now. Um, it's the, the ramp up of like the Latin Kings and the, the Bloods and the Crips and the evolution of gangs like the Trinitarios and the bad Barbies and, and stuff like that, that, you know, has these gangs think differently. Like they'll do things that other gangs wouldn't. Um, now this is going to, this is unsavory. So, you know, you may want to turn off at this point, but like an issue that we have in uh, the Bronx more than Harlem, but it's also in Harlem is that you've got gangs where someone will owe a drug debt and they'll gang rape a guy. Okay, if if your girl owes money, and you know you're with her, and it, she's owed it for a while to the gangs, they'll come and gang rape you. And this is this is a a new problem. It's it's something radically like this didn't exist 15 years ago, but now it's here. And in the projects and in in you know, like rougher working class parts of the city where the gangs are prevalent. Um, this can become a, a consistent ongoing problem because what they're doing is they're creating so much trauma is that they're creating an ongoing like consumer base for like all of these goods that they have to offer. Oh, it's a negative feedback loop, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you create this vicious cycle. And it, it becomes this triangle trade in, in pain and suffering and drugs. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. Um, and if you really want to disrupt that, that's going to require, I think, state and federal participation in one, you know, we need some abatement and education programs and they have to be more than this like lip service that, you know, don't do drugs. I, I mean, you literally need to get engaged and either bring you know community leaders um in terms of therapists and, and that sort of thing but you also have to bring faith-based leaders in on this and you have to let people know that it's okay to have these conversations because a lot of people don't know it's still okay to have these conversations and that's where you know you, you run into situations like what i'm dealing with here where it's like a, a uncle and a nephew died together mm. you know and and these are i mean these are people i've known for like decades um not that the nephew was that old he was 30 mm. right mm. and um you know so that's that that needs to start then you need the the concerted effort 
of, of figuring out how law enforcement can get beyond itself without impinging too much upon our rights, you know, because there's that, that weird balance that always has to be kept. Um, and then it, it becomes... Adding to those cycles as well, like is, is one of the biggest issues with our gangs here is like getting mm -hmm. pinched by the cops. And then like, that's the beginning of the real interview process. Like, yeah. But yeah, because getting getting pinched by the cops is typically like their initiation. Um, it can be something far worse, you know. But I, I really don't want to like get get. I, that's not something we should get into I here. Just, I just mean, like, a lot of people <laughs> underestimate how like how difficult it is to fix rather than disrupt um, a sort of like ecology of crime. Like, I mean, you know, you know what people don't understand is how well organized these these criminals are. Like, yeah, you know, when they want to open a new, like a new branch or a, a new club for, I'm not, I'm not going to say which gang, but they have like forms and paperwork that they have to fax back to like a, a parent and they have to get authorized in order to do that and then get dispensation for a charter. They're organized. True. Like they're organized, and and anything that that keeps administratively. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, God, bureaucracy and crime. Who thought of that? You know, it's like, oh, these gangs have bureaucracies. Yeah, yeah, they do. They don't call it organized crime for nothing. Um, um, and and look, anything that that keeps people in that um in that cycle where, um, you know, as soon as you're you're caught for a crime related to that and have that as uh you know on your on your record you're you're in a position mm -hmm. where your options that start to close in you, the doors that are open to you start to start to disappear and um you know yeah what, job opportunities access friends the whole night you, you almost have no choice what, but to double down. Most amazing one of the most amazing um security executives i've ever met has such a bad rap sheet that now he's incentivized to like, like if he wants any mobility, he has to rob banks, even though he's like actually probably the best person to be fixing those problems. Ooh. Now he has to go do those problems because he made a bunch of mistakes on drugs in his twenties. So now in his thirties, yeah. instead of fixing these problems, he's being them. Yeah, it's been, a man who understands. Yeah, like he understands that paradigm, but he's been forced onto the the side of the tracks where he's way more of a problem. Like this, this next thing I'm going to toss out there, like this is the solving of this. This is not going to sound very Republican, but yeah, I've been thinking about this for months and on end. The two problems inside of the drug issue: one is that you have all of these drug addicted babies, and you know babies that are the product of like a drug transaction or drug violence or, or those types of things, and and you don't have a safety net or or a treatment net for that. And all it does is it just puts more messed up poor people into poor black and brown communities or poor white communities, and no one talks about the white communities. Um, and effectively, there's no difference in between, you know, Appalachia and Harlem in terms of the unemployment rates, the drug addiction rates, all of these other, these, these all the data is like similar, right? It's just the color of the people is different and the types of housing are different. It's trailers here, it's Section 8 housing here, okay? Um, th that's, that's one thing that has to be looked at. The second piece is how do you help people and rehabilitate them back into society? We haven't had precept and doing that since the works programs in the 1930s in this country 
all right, where we, we had economic you know, situations that were far dire than what we have now. We had unemployment across the country. It was like 30%, right? So I personally think that if you took the child welfare and payment system and you took something like a blockchain and slapped it on the back, but it made this whole thing auditable, all right? And that we brought in technology to really reduce some of these state office worker jobs that you know are redundant duplicative um, and just bureaucracy inside of that we could cut a ton of the overhead out of the the child support payment and the subsistence programs that are there that are really just people paying this stuff and we should make sure that more money goes to the kids what you can also do is tie that into training and education programs to make sure that you know the primary parent has opportunities to get into better jobs and that the kids have opportunities to at least get into trade or training such as like we see all the changes happening in industry in america today because that has to happen the next piece of this is you need a, an overhaul of the welfare program to expand it now i'm clear on this we've got welfare we've got child support you got section eight you got food stamps and you got a couple other pieces what needs to be happened that these need to be put into a an organizational funnel based upon the profile of like the type of parent and child that are in need. And that has to be tied into a work fair program whereby if they can level up on the job, they can still get the, the health care and they can still get the child care so they can level up enough so that they can comfortably economically get off of those services and then continue to build from there. Because right now in America, it's pretty much set up that like if you are earning, I think it's like about 32,000 and you'd get a job that puts you in like the 40 to 50 K range, you'd lose the child support. Okay. But that's still not enough to, to freaking live on, especially in a city like New York. And um, so, you know, if you re, if you fix, that portion of the problem expands some of the funding inside of there you just make for better communities you make for better families you better make for better family relations but then it ties to the last thing the last thing that would really start disrupting this because again you know it's uh, there's too many children affected inside of this is that we need to have some sort of a subsidy program and i'm still mulling this one over but there has to be either a child tax credit or a earned income credit or a subsidy that is afforded at least for the first couple of years to make sure that these kids are fed that they are properly clothed and they're properly housed okay because we're not even at the education level just there but it's just it is a freaking nightmare what's out there and I think that if you're going to do some cost management on this, that this should be afforded to citizens and citizens' kids to begin with, and that we do a separate overhaul of the immigration program and the immigration policies. Because right now, like the city of New York is spending like $55 billion additional a year. It, it may not be 55, maybe 35. Um, I may have the numbers wrong, but it's several billion dollars a year just to house new migrant populations. And when they put the kids into the schools, they don't have enough teachers, they're running into additional problems, then there's the behavioral issues because you don't have enough 
bilingually educated teachers, you, you can't provide enough services, it, you just start basically driving things to crash into a wall. So if you want to fix it, you have to fix a systemic issue. But it needs to at least have those pieces and it needs to have the support of policy from Washington and you know the states. And I think that our, our leaders need to understand that what's going on with the heroin epidemic is the crack epidemic to black people, but now not just happening to white people, happening to everybody. Mm. So there is um, there are nuances between the, you know, the United States and Australia and New Zealand and mm. uh, differences in terms of the, the uh, support networks that are in place. Uh, between those between those countries and what the mm -hmm. problems actually are and um i'd love to get tristan your insight given that you've lived in both countries and, and um seen these problems from different perspectives um what's what's your view on on how that could be tackled on this on this side of the of the planet well i've seen a surprising amount of um of similarities that, that appear to be more or less installed into all of these communities. And I'm talking about from my time um, going to a, a pretty much all black basketball school full of kids from poor areas with a lot of talent to living in Sarasota, surrounded by country clubs, um, soccer moms, etc., cetera, um, to Australia, to New Zealand, all of these different communities there's there's little um there's little fishing lines dropped towards opioid addiction in all of them yeah right like there's uh you you, you see a, a pipeline of kids in poor areas that go from having subsidized ritalin when they're younger to mm -hmm. then um using methamphetamine because that's just cheaper per scale and easier to access. Um, whereas in the richer areas, they might stay on the riddle in their whole life. However, when it comes to the downers and when it comes to opioids, everyone's extended family has some source of Vicodin sneaking in, mm. right? And so these kids, they get on, uh, you know, any sort of pop culture whatsoever. You'll even see someone who's, you know, got gotten a, a massive wide-reaching audience and appeal for whatever reasons like Lil Nas X talking about mm -hmm. sipping lean and this getting put in front of kids yeah. and so right after Old Town Road there's 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 little fish hooks in all of these communities um and they've got you know it started with um it started with Eminem like glorifying this towards white people and there being, you know, everyone's got a grandpa with some Vicodin and M&M's mm. making it sound cool to um, after him, uh, Lil Wayne. And then after Lil Wayne, uh, a whole bunch of things that sort of look or sound or they might not be the same product, but when you look at their effect on human behavior as yeah. like a, a you know, a funnel with various checkpoints where people get, you know, they get roped in further or they find that disgusting or what have you. And it sort of creates like an ecology of personalities and um, behavioral groupings. Um, the same funnels are sort of handed out 
um, in various in various different communities and uh, glorified. And uh, there's even you know there's there's like negative dialectic forms of marketing present in how it then gets stigmatized by some because then that offers people a sense of identity to be able to go do that stigmatized thing with those other people or or what have you. And uh, there's there's everything from people feeling a need to partake in a um, sociocultural uh, ritual to um, an addiction because it helps deal with emotions um, in a very, very damaging and uh, terrible way to yeah. it dealing with problems of real pain to uh, I was often taking down as not because I couldn't handle the pain. I could play, I could be a great athlete on top of the pain. The problem is that when it got bad enough, it was starting to create like pain induced psychosis. So there's all these multiple compounds of issues that cre- that are created um, mm. and and dumped into all communities where we know a certain amount of people who, you know, uh, touch the fire here will end up here. A certain amount of them will end up here. And there's there's this sort of deepening of um, of the funnel they're dragging us into in in, uh, in terms of uh, like actually how potent they are as well like one of the things Mm -hmm. that i think that people underestimate in terms of lean being quite a pushed thing is the promethazine and is an anti-nausea so you can get higher on the codeine than you would be able to without an anti-nausea present so it's actually there to fast track people's addiction cycle so um in all of these different communities all of which I've been in for the right and wrong reasons over time and partaken in these rituals. Like it's incredible. It took me a long Mm. time to accept the opioids when I was dealing with it for a, um, for a real pain and hardware level reason, because I'd already actually fucked up previously for, you know, other reasons where, where I found this drug, you know, just in like, Oh, it got prescribed for to, to me because, I did a particularly bad sprain and they gave me a couple of days worth, but I discovered while I was on it, I didn't have to deal with this other pain or I didn't have to deal with this emotional problem. And I, I, I fucked up in a lot of these ways and I'm really lucky mm-hmm. to have come out on the other end of it. Um, and it, it, it's, it's like um, I've heard like race car drivers describing watching us normies try to drive at a you know 100 k's 100 miles an hour they talk about how often they see people creating the possibility of an incident that doesn't need to occur right Right. and having been having slipped up in and seen so many of these funnels i walk everywhere and i see it happening and i see people who've you know uh gotten clean for the second or third time and someone's like oh, it's really great. I think he's going to do it this time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Uh, he's gone through this withdrawal process, but he's around these people. When he gets uh, back to this level professionally, which is probably going to take him a few months, and he gets mm. into a sales position where he has enough cash to start spending it, and he's got people around him who can reinforce it as a uh, like reward or celebration process, yeah. that's when he's like, I can see it. I'm like, this guy, like, like I see it. I'm like, nah. That guy's addiction doesn't come from this. It comes from sociocultural. So he mm-hmm. succeeded for six months because he's got rid of these people in his life. Now he's going to, in, now he's going to 
uh, deal with people that do coke for an entirely different reason to his old street mm. friend, and then he's going to fuck up again there. And they're just like, oh, that's pretty negative of you to say. And I'm just like, this is from experience. This is well, from the what should happen. This is, yeah, this that is ex- not that explains why it happens over yeah. and over again to so many people, and they can't figure out why is because the the reason to shifts. But the end result of the, the social or cultural event is there. And if they want to celebrate and that's what they're celebrating with, then you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And they're over. Like I remember saying, like, I've, I've seen this guy. I've seen him quit uh, alcohol. But when he's in a setting where people are celebrating with champagne, he's got some kind of conditioning where he doesn't want to be the asshole that doesn't celebrate with them. It's even, he, he's even actually like doing people who only smoke cigarettes when they're drinking. Even that's that a level. that's another one though that that's another one that's a usually a chemical thing. That's that's mm-hmm. to do with the associative memory circuits. Um, that's 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 it. That's a pretty good way of explaining how some of these fish hooks operate. Right. Alcohol right. is one of the biggest baits to many various fish hooks because it's lowering your um, inhibition, it's lowering your anxiety, it's increasing your personability. So you're dealing with people you wouldn't normally deal with. You're probably, you, you can forgive people who you've normally been trying to distance yourself from because you're an addict in the past. And then you've got a lower sense of willpower and a greater yeah. propensity towards short-term uh, you know, uh, rewards. And alcohol and tobacco are both excellent at um, associative memory. You, know, you can go a place where you used to drink and be like, damn, I want a beer right now and you haven't had a beer in a few years. Yeah. Um, cigarettes, like I found, um, I found tobacco hard to get rid of because of how well it manages to tie itself as a trigger. Like it just, it feels like an awesome idea. I'm about to go do this thing. I should have a smoke first. And it feels like, yeah. I don't know how it manages to get into the brain. Like, oh, awesome idea. I'll go have a smoke. Oh, you, you just know, did this? My, my, my thought is on it. Cause I, I gave up smoking after a long time. Um, it gives you a mental pause. And, and there's kind of this understood in between smokers where I'm just here and I need to fuck off by myself for a second. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it lets, and, it literally lets you almost reset. Yeah. And, and, and it's, um, it, it's a, it's a crutch that, that people, mm-hmm. uh, go to, uh, in order to, yeah, as you said, st- sort of step away or, or to, uh, process, process something. It's, it's a, uh, a thing that distracts them or it's a habit that they've that they've built and I remember talking to my dad about uh, about this because he had a quadruple bypass surgery when he was 44 and <clears throat> when he was going into the and he'd been smoking for 30 years before before this so as he was entering the hospital um, he had his last cigarette uh, because he knew that once he went in, he wasn't going to be able to smoke for a while. Um, yeah. So he had his last cigarette, went in, never smoked again. And um, after he recovered from the surgery and started, uh, w- was able to drive again, um, he mm-hmm. told me that he was, uh, it, it, it's a strange feeling to go from smoking for 30 years to then not. And he, he had all of these kind of neural networks that were, that were, uh, built into his brain where he'd go to reverse the car and look over his shoulder and, and go, that's weird. This is exactly the moment where I would light a cigarette normally. 
and he had that, exactly. that kind of conscious awareness of that. Um, he didn't, and he and he hasn't in the uh, I think ten years since uh, since that that happened. But um, uh, yeah, it's just it's just really uh, it was really interesting to me the way he described it that he that he goes, oh, this is a weird feeling because right now my normal thing would be to light a cigarette. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that that like kind of ties us into, you know, all of these issues. I, I mean, there's many things out there that can be addictive, and and a lot of them aren't drugs. They they can be you know things that are, are negative passions that people just indulge way too much in, and you know there's there's always a legislative option to solve these things. Um, but oftentimes, as I kind of articulated, it's many different things that have to happen mm. all at the same time. And I, I think it comes down to, like, you know, whether you believe or not, faith, family, community. And, and if you don't believe, you know, community and your circle of conscience, right? I mean, those are the things that I think can kind of pull you out of it. Um, but the rest of it's going to really require us, you know, doing some deep digging over the next couple of years. And I think even transforming, like, from a policy perspective about how we address this culturally. Because if you think about this now, we currently have as many generations living side by side as we did in America before the Civil War. We've got Great War, Boomers, Gen X, myself, right? Millennials and Gen Z, Kristen. Uh, then we've got um, Gen Alpha, which is everyone who is, you know, like, roughly about uh, 12 or 13 and under. And that hasn't happened in a very long period of time. And that also explains like why we have such viscerally different perspectives across generations and can't see eye to eye on this stuff. Mm. Yeah. I think um, ultimately like we have to recognize that um, like these sort of these funnels of various fish hooks that exist, um, A, do exist, B, are powerful, and C, uh, have their own sets of offers that I think mm -hmm. we do a really poor job of making conscious. Like, people don't really talk enough about, like, okay, well, what does... You know, like if you look at these, look at a drug addiction, like it's a subscription. Yeah. It kind of is. If you look at it as a subscription and go, well, what's it offering? Right. Mm -hmm. I had to get really deep with myself and go, well, what's this offering me that I'm selecting? Because my conscious mind knows it's bad. Uh, shouldn't be choosing against it, but isn't. Mm -hmm. um, so what is, what is, what is this thing selling to my subconscious? Because unless I can articulate it, then I'm not gonna have. I'm not gonna even give my conscious mind the tools to be in control of that process. And mm -hmm. so, like, like I say to young men often, and this is this is I think a huge part of like us lacking community and um, you know sort of learning to be people and live alongside like one another, especially intergenerationally, is like explaining to young men who you know don't have the greatest decision making circuits they'll have in their entire life. And do have their greatest capacity for blunt object violence their entire life. Explaining yeah. to them, like basic shit, like like they they they've got an over coddled worldview presented to them where they just get told, no, violence is bad. Don't be bad. Don't be. Like, that's the only tone they hear. 
They don't have anyone saying, hey, I know that revenge might feel good to you right now and it might seem rewarding. You know, and this is how I actually get through to a lot of my friends who I've talked out of doing dumb things before is to say, hey, let's let's put the pros and cons down. What what are you going to gain from this revenge? How long is that gain going to last you? What, mm-hmm. what, what, you know, what is the really the sale here? Because it looks like a crap one to me. I say that to them. I say, oh, revenge might feel good. Opioids might feel good. Oh yeah. Alcohol, that would feel good. You just had a breakup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't have to deal with that. You get to put those emotions on hold, but hang on. There's actually an interest rate on that. Yep. They're like, huh? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, well, tomorrow you're going to have gone a whole day further without ripping this band aid. You're good, you know what I mean? And start explaining it to them and be like, okay, you're sacrificing your like your, your functionality physically and mentally. You're burning years off your life. You're adding another band-aid that's gonna have to be ripped anyway. And it's only gonna compound your anxious issue about this other problem and and actually break it down that way and just go, oh, this subscription deal sucks. And if you don't have that conversation with someone who can't handle their pain in in that moment. And they realize taking a pill can turn it off. Mm-hmm. They're going to take the pill because yeah. all you're selling them is wives' tales. Unless we really break down these, like we well, we can't. We have to break it down, and you know what? We have to afford them an opportunity to either community or or something that allows them yeah. to become a little better. Well, like I found, I found like uh, I've built sales teams off the back of recovering addicts, and mm-hmm. it works it works like when you identify this is the way this person's risk and reward system operates this Mm -hmm. is the way uh you know this is the level of hustle they're capable of having once those circuits focused on that thing and you you take people that are you know they're going 100 miles an hour and you know one direction you change that just slightly different they end up in an amazing place in a year's time and basically saying to them, hey, you don't suck. Your brain's not broken, but mm. it works this way. It, it, it repeatedly has this pattern of, uh, you know, whether it's novelty or risk and reward seeking and going, okay, what other games are there for you to play? Because it's clear that you're capable of committing to an extreme degree, you know? Yeah. And when, when they start to really see that, uh often when it's really quite uh pathological they are a bit different and Mm -hmm. their reward systems function differently and to be like you're not broken you know it's really easy to tell someone who's seven foot tall that they're just built wrong if all your society does is pick kiwi fruit where the vines are feet high you know and to just and to say to some of them hey no you're not a crap uh you know person in general, but history has proven you're crap at this. You don't handle mm-hmm. this right well, not in this scenario. That was bad. What can we take from knowing about your your behavioral patterns that are useful or destructive and create mm-hmm. a scenario with some real like feng shui to their to their circuitry and they can just flourish. That that's absolutely correct. And I think that's that's really more of the tact we need to get people to understand. Yeah, like because if you you find that replacement that replacement model for what your risk reward system is, and Mm. that could be a variety of different things, and it could be everything from extreme sports to going into like you know executive sales, um, it's better for you. 
it's better for those around you. And honestly, you'll end up surrounding yourself with people that you like a lot more. And you're empowering the individual. In in particular, the ones who I can really understand, who Mm -hmm. uh, went from sports to then uh, injury or mistakes led them down that path of drugs in going, yo, you miss your competitive outlet, don't you? When you get excited, get annoyingly excited by most people's standards and I get them to, to properly anchor down, you know, these are people who know they've got a great capacity for hard work too. Like there's no fun in, you know, suicide runs on a basketball court. People who are good at it know that this thing is necessary for this larger reward. And so they're actually like quite often people look at these people and make a mistake of thinking that they're only geared for short term uh, rewards, actually, they're geared for short-term intensity. They want intensity. They're capable of larger and longer rewards. That's how sports is done. And exactly. grabbing these people and just like literally, and the ones that I can really understand and empathize with, specifically the ones who were athletes who became dopaminergic drug addicts and rewire them into a sales position. And oh my God. <laughs> I think I want a guy like that more than I want a you know neurotypical who's had a sales position for the past three years mm. when I'm putting together a team. Um, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it there. That was the second episode of the Wizard and Oz podcast. Hopefully, you learned a lot. I think that we managed to cover off a really broad range of of subjects and hopefully some really empowering solutions there. Um, we're going to have some fantastic conversations coming up that we've been that we've been planning over the last uh, week or so. And if you want to follow along, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, all the regular awesome. social. Oz and Tristan, <laughs> do you guys have any closing thoughts around around that? I think you know, as a people in the West, we can do better. I think we owe it to ourselves to challenge our legislators to that. And I, I think we owe it to ourselves to work within our communities to find ways that, uh, I don't know, we can help people to understand that transformation is within your grasp. It's, you know, up to you to, to kind of figure out the path and, and what's best for you. Yeah, great. Um, Tristan? So pick, pick the better dopamine. The scalable hedonism is always the best one. And it doesn't take away from the rest of your life. Yeah, brilliant. Wise words. Well, thank you for watching. Uh, We'll be back next week.